Hey everybody, it's Jim Mallard here. Welcome to the Mallard Report. The Mallard Report is recorded in front of a live virtual audience on the Duck Pond. Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, live. Mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. One more thing before we start. Let me turn it over to my friend that you may know from Ancient Aliens and the Curse of Oak Island and many other things. Robert Clotworthy. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcast, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. This is the first time I've edited something out of the Rumor Report. The intro to this show, originally live, was very rough. Uh, Mark and I had some some words. Uh, friendly criticism during the live beginning of the program. So I edited those out to the point where we kind of cleaned it up and started moving forward with a great show. I mean, the show turned out pretty well otherwise. So, yeah, let's get on with the business at hand because Mark's a great guest. Hi, I'm Jim Mallard. We're welcoming back Mark Anthony, the psychic explorer to the show. Boom. Just do that. Okay. Don't Let's even, do don't even bother reading it because it's, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm your friend. And so I'm telling you this. It sounds like you're drunk or stoned or just <laughs> totally out of it. And that is not a good impression because you're a good radio host and that is not coming across professionally at all. Well, thank you, Mark. Mark, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jim. It's really great being here. And for those of you who um, may not be familiar with me, Jim and I have been uh, uh, on the air for years. And I'm known as the Psychic Lawyer, also known as the Psychic Explorer, because I travel the world examining supernatural phenomenon, ancient mysteries. But I'm also a an attorney licensed to practice law in Florida, Washington, D.C., and before the United States Supreme Court. And uh, Jim and I never have a lack of anything to talk about. So that's why I'm back here. Jim, thanks for having me on the show. Thank you, Mark, for cleaning that up all well. Uh, Mark, you're, you're licensed to practice law in Florida. Now, the Florida man phenomenon, is that your fault? No. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, uh, I, I do my very best to avoid politics because, you know, one of my heroes has always been Steve Martin. I love Steve Martin movies. I like his comedy because he's smart. Uh, I believe that Steve Martin's a genius. And he said in an interview once, never get political because when you do, you lose half your audience. And believe me, Jim, I have definite political opinions, but that's not what I'm here to talk about. So no, I no, avoid the, that. No, and I know what you're talking about with the, Florida. The crazy, um, the but, crazy man stuff. Not, not the, not the Florida man. The general concept of the guy who's out doing bath salts and uh, wrestling alligators. The, the crazy Florida man. Not. <laughs> well, they've been around for a long time. <laughs> I remember when I was a little kid. Uh, my parents would take me. We'd go to the Seminole um, Indian territories. And we'd watch alligator wrestling. And let me tell you, that was intense. And so there'd be these Native American guys, and they'd jump into this big pool with an alligator and wrestle them. And uh, they, they would have the gator's mouth taped shut so it couldn't bite them. But they, they would wrestle it uh, to a standstill. 
And it's funny because, you know, when I was like three, four, five, I didn't think that was weird because that was something that we did all the time. And then as I got older, I realized, oh, my God, I used to watch guys go wrestle alligators. <laughs> and that's pretty crazy stuff. So you said you were head, uh, added out to the Parents Afterlife Conference. Is that what I heard you say earlier? Helping Parents Heal. And Helping Parents Heal is an organization dedicated to helping parents who've lost children uh, cope with and heal from the crushing effects of losing a child. And I'm the keynote speaker this year in Phoenix. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'll be flying there on the 18th, and I'll be there through the 21st. I'll be presenting a keynote talk called uh, The Healing Power of Interdimensional Communication. In other words, The Healing Power of Spirit Communication. And uh, I'm really looking forward to meeting so many uh, of these just amazing people who are coping with the most devastating loss imaginable. Yeah, I was going to say, as a parent myself, I can't imagine losing a child, let alone trying to deal with it. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, there are no words for it. And it's, it's always very, um, very challenging, uh, helping these people because some, some are so angry. You know, they're like, well, what do you know? You know, you haven't lost a child, but you know, people need to realize I'm a psychic medium. And what I do is I facilitate communication with people here in this world with their loved ones in spirit. And that's the, basis of my talk, the healing power of interdimensional communication, because that's what I call mediumship. It, it, and that's what we're doing. We we live, we exist in the material world dimension, and we're communicating with a higher vibrational frequency, which is literally another dimension. And it can be extremely empowering and comforting when you can make contact from and hear from and receive messages from loved ones in spirit because it helps people understand that life truly does exist beyond the physical, that life is eternal, and that someone you loved so much did not just disintegrate, but actually what they've done is they quantum leap to a another level of consciousness. So, Mark, I feel like we're jumping into something here because I, I know I've known you for almost 10 years now, so I kind of feel like I'm always jumping in the deep end with you and we're just kind of picking back up. But I want you to, for my new listeners out there who may not have heard you before, take me back to when you were dealing with your grandmother in the early days of being a medium. Well, it's with my parents, actually, because uh, when I was about three and a half years old, I started interacting with invisible friends, and uh, and which is not unusual for a toddler to have invisible friends, except for the fact that my mother and my father could see who I was talking to because they're both mediums. And I remember my mom was like, oh, he's got it. And my dad's reaction was somewhat different. It was, oh, he's got it. And my dad was concerned for my safety that people would be, you know, would treat me uh, really badly and, and ostracize me and treat me like a weirdo. And what I found out, Jim, is... is um, why he was so upset about this it occurred when I was about five years old. I was getting ready to start school. I started first grade when I was five, and Dad said, don't talk about this to anyone but your mother and I. 
And he said, people that see things others don't get taken away. And that really scared me. But years later, I discovered that about two decades before I was born, his sister Marjorie, my dad had four siblings, three sisters and a brother, and his sister Marjorie was a medium like he was. She was married, unfortunately, to this religious nut. Um, he, you know, he was one of these Bible thumping, cast the first stone evangelicals. And he looked at her abilities not as a gift from God, which is what he should have been looking at it as, but instead as something negative. And one day he was getting ready to go for work. He was a machinist at the steel plant in Pennsylvania, and he was getting ready to go to work, and she begged him, Jim, not to go to work. She goes, something terrible is going to happen, something. They had a big fight, and he said, fine, I'll stay home. Well, that day a crane was lifting thousands of pounds of steel beams, and the cable snapped, and the beams crushed the machine shop where he worked, and it killed everybody. So instead of being grateful, because if he'd been there, most likely he would have been killed, he colluded with an unscrupulous psychiatrist who diagnosed my Aunt Marjorie as a schizophrenic, and they literally had an ambulance come to the house, two men in white coats, forcibly remove her from her home, put her in a straitjacket, and take her to a mental institution where she was subjected to electroshock therapy for over six months. And the damage that it did to her brain was such that she never again spoke of seeing spirits. So when I was a teenager, I found out about all this, and then it made sense why my father didn't want me talking about this outside of the home. Because back in in my Aunt Marjorie's uh, day, uh, this was looked at as mental illness. It was ostracized. You know, even today, you know, we saw always mediums. We always have to put up with skeptics and cynics. And part of the problem is some of our colleagues. I mean, there are some frauds out there, and, and I could name a few, but I'm not going to. <laughs> um, and I've also seen some things that are being passed off as mediums, especially these physical mediums that make people sit in the dark. And, and uh, oh, the light will affect the ectoplasm, and they make all these goofy sounds in the dark, and it's supposed to be mediumship when it's nothing more than, you know, a sideshow carnival nonsense. But But for those of us who are legitimate mediums, uh, there are, we always have to contend with people who are not going to accept it, not going to believe it. And, you know, that just comes with the territory. So let's, let's drill down on that because you mentioned the, um, in the dark mediums. I, I, I'm going to mention the other type of, um, phony baloney fraud, whatever you want to, whatever tag you want to put on. I think phony baloney looks good. Um, they start asking questions and they, some people call it cold reading and some people just call it asking enough questions until you have something you can come up with. Um, I mean, I've done it to people just to kind of show them that people do cold read. So how can, now my question to you, Mark, is um, how can people tell the difference when they're kind of feeling they might be getting something, but maybe they're not 100% sold on it? Well, um, what's going to happen is a legitimate medium is going to present evidence more than just, oh, your grandmother's here, she's with you, she loves you, she wants you to be happy. Okay, well, anybody can say that. But let me give you an example. Um, I was doing a reading for this woman, and her mother's spirit came through and began to talk to me about a young male 
on the child level, um, which could mean a child or a nephew or possibly even the child of a friend who's here in this world and having a problem with their vision. And she said, well, that's interesting because um, she goes, I don't have any children, but my sister has a son and he's been complaining about his eyesight lately. I said, you know, I get the sense he's around six or seven. She goes, he's seven. I said, all right. I said, so your mother wants you to make sure that your sister takes your nephew to the eye doctor. She goes, okay. And I said, now I'm hearing little Richard singing tutti frutti, ah, Rudy. And I'm humming tutti frutti, ah, Rudy. And she goes, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. I said, well, um, are you a Little Richard fan? She goes, I know who he was, but no, we don't really listen to his music. That song doesn't mean anything. And I said, well, don't worry about it. Because the thing is, Jim, when messages from spirits come through, they don't always immediately make sense. It can take time to understand it. So about two weeks later, I get an email from her, and she said, Mark, you're not going to believe this, but... I uh, called my sister and I said, you know, that uh, I had a reading with you and that our mom's spirit said, get my nephew to the eye doctor. So we made an appointment and I went with them. And so my sister, my seven-year-old nephew and I, we go to the eye doctor's office. And as soon as we walked into the office, into the waiting room on the radio, started playing Tutti Frutti, Ah Rudy by Little Richard. Now, how could I cold read that? What are the odds of me getting a song out of all the songs that have ever been written by and by all the artists who've ever been written that it's going to play at that precise time? And so that's when you know that you have legitimate spirit contact when verifiable facts and evidence come through. Look, I, I didn't know this lady. It was a telephone reading. I had no idea she had a nephew, nor did I have any idea that the seven-year-old nephew was having vision problems, and I just didn't pull Tutti Frutti Ah Rudy by Little Richard out of thin air. So when you start receiving facts, thing, things that can be verified, and many times, Jim, the information that uh, that comes through, the recipient may not understand it right away. And in that case, the spirit was giving us the projection of a future event. Now, how is that possible? Well, in in my book, The Afterlife Frequency, I go into great detail explaining how spirits can see future events because on the quantum level, in other words, on the subatomic level, everything's made of molecules, which are made of atoms, which in turn are made of electrons, protons, and neutrons, which in turn are composed of a smaller particle known as a quantum, which is pure electromagnetic energy. Henceforth, the term quantum physics. And on the quantum level, Jim, scientists from Albert Einstein onwards have theorized that on the quantum level, time as we know it does not exist. It's occurring simultaneously the present with the past and the future. And because spirits are pure electromagnetic energy, they can tap into that. And think about it. Radio waves are also um, electromagnetic energy. Uh, there's radio waves, gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet, microwaves, and visible light are all different forms of electromagnetic energy and they're all on the, you know, what's known as the EM spectrum. And spirits being pure EM energy 
are able to tap into that. And that's why spirits can see future events. So that is the difference in someone saying, oh, yes, your mother's here. Yes, she died. How did she die? Oh, a heart attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heart attack. She loves you. When you start hearing stuff like that, and it's real vague in general, um, either uh, there's a problem with the connection with the other side or you're dealing with a phony medium. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best cold reading on you right now. Uh, there was a male that's passed in your life who used to smoke and work hard. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my dad. I remember when he stopped smoking. My dad was a trip. He um, he was a Navy SEAL, and then after that, he became an engineer and worked at NASA. And dad smoked four packs of cigarettes a day. I mean, he smoked like a chimney. And I remember when my mom convinced him to stop smoking and true to form like a navy seal he goes i don't need therapy i don't need counseling i don't need those patches i'm going cold turkey and he did well when uh when you go cold turkey from chain smoking yeah i was gonna say that i'm just oh picturing this oh my god uh the cilia and your lungs start to grow back uh, uh which is a good thing but it can be painful and then you go through the withdrawals from nicotine i remember my dad saying i think i'm dying i think i'm dying and my mom was like no you're not dying you're just detoxing and and they had this whole thing and about a month later um he he finally stopped having the cravings for the nicotine and uh my dad lived to be 91 years old uh so so, uh, but you know, all these people that, oh, I need therapy and this and that, you know, if you make up your mind to do something, you can do it. But on the other hand, dad was built of some sterner stuff. But yeah, that would be a cold reading because let's face it, Jim, most of the people in our parents' generation, they smoked. Why? Because it was cool. I mean, a lot of people now smoke. And, you know, I look at them and it's like, really, you haven't heard how that is killing you? And they sit there and I remember when I was practicing law. Um, I had this client and, um, they were in their twenties and, um, is this guy and his wife, she was pregnant. And as soon as we walk out of the courthouse, she lights up a cigarette. I go, you're smoking when you're pregnant. And she's staring at me. I said, you do know what you're doing to the fetus, right? By, uh, introducing all of that carbon based material into your bloodstream, you're diminishing the amount of oxygen in your red blood cells. So therefore you're depriving your fetus of oxygen levels and they'll probably and it's going to affect the health of the child and very possibly its IQ. And so she takes a big drag uh, of her cigarette and blows it in my direction, you know, which is a <laughs> silent way of saying F you to me. And I said, well, when your brain impaired child is a teenager and gets arrested, here's my card. <laughs> I'll see you in about 15 years. <laughs> oh, Mark. Okay. Well, we're at a good <laughs> Mark, we're at a good pausing point. I'll give you up. Uh, we mentioned the uh, the conference, and you've mentioned the book. Uh, go ahead and uh, give me that big file promo of all that stuff right now before we get too well, far gone. Well, the, the best way to find out about everything I'm doing is to go to my website, which is afterlifefrequency, all one word, afterlifefrequency.com, which is the same as my new book, The Afterlife Frequency. And you can, and I invite all of the Mallard Report listeners to sign up for my newsletter. That'll keep you up to date on, on what I'm doing. Also go to my calendar of events. Uh, you'll see the, the, uh, things and events and, uh, uh, coming up. I got a lot of stuff going on this year. 
I've got the Helping Parents Heal Conference this week. In two weeks, I've got the International Association for Near-Death Studies. Then in September, I have two online spirit communication events limited to six people each so that everybody gets a reading. And then in October, um, a presenter at the Edgar Casey Ancient Mysteries Conference in Virginia Beach. And that's just for starters. we got all kinds of things going on. You can also apply for... A, uh, a telephone reading with me, and that's all at my website, afterlifefrequency.com. You're staying busy. Yeah, I am. You know, when, when COVID hit, I was planning to go on a whole nationwide tour. I mean, we had things booked. I had a big event in, in Hollywood, and then all of a sudden that got, got killed, and then the entire nationwide tour, um, you know, because everything went into lockdown, and so then I figured, well, I can't just sit here at home and do nothing. So I I started doing online events. And uh, I remember I came on your show because you said, all right, let's get some stuff going. Let's uh, booking. So I changed, you know, from from physical uh, events to to uh, these virtual events um, that I started doing a show with Dr. Pat Basile, the psychic in the doc, and it's a call-in show every Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. You can find out about that on my site too. And we, we take uh, calls from listeners. So I'll, I'll do a uh, mini readings for people, uh, connecting them with their loved ones in, in tandem with Dr. Pat's intuitive insights. And she really is amazing. Uh, she's, She's out of Seattle. She's kind of like the female Frasier. Remember that show, Frasier? <laughs> she, and, but she's, you know, she's cool like, like Frasier and, and, and she has just such a, a, a huge amount of wisdom and it just has turned into such a wonderful and, and healing experience. So yeah, I, I, I'm keeping busy. I've always been busy. I, I can't ever think of a time in my life where all I did is just sort of hang out and lay around. Uh, to me, I've got to be doing something. Uh, every day has to count. And that's just, you know, some people aren't like that. Some people are, but that's, that's the way I choose uh, to live my life. So let's, let's jump off into the exploring bit. Cause as you're traveling around, I'm sure you're trying to get some exploring in. I am. Um, I, I'm looking into going to Egypt next year. Uh, Egyptology is one of my passions. In fact, I'll be on a very famous radio show to talk about the curse of King Tut in November. Now, let me see. What's that show again? Oh, yeah, this one, The Mallard Report. Um, uh, because this is, this year is the 100th anniversary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. And, uh, there is so much controversy surrounding that discovery. A lot of mysteries, a lot of people that were connected to the opening of the tomb and who visited it died under mysterious circumstances after they, uh, after it was um, discovered, uh, which sparked rumors of a curse. Also, upon closer examination of the body of the king, it appears that he died under very mysterious circumstances as well. Um, and then one of the most disturbing finds within the tomb, Jim, were two mummified fetuses. And they appear to be two little baby twin girls. And recent DNA tests 
seem to indicate that they were Tutankhamun's daughters. So the question is, did they die or was this some weird human sacrificial thing that that we don't know? It probably wasn't a human sacrificial thing, but on the other hand, that was uh, for archaeologists a very disturbing find. Anyway, that's just a little bit of what we're going to be talking about in November um, about the curse of King Tut's tomb. So I, I do want to dive into the pyramids in Egypt, though, just for... Okay, Mark. I've, I don't know if I've told you this joke before, but my listeners out there have heard this before, and I apologize to them because they're probably tired of me here saying this to guests. I could go to Home Depot tonight. Of course, they're closed now, but if they were open, I could go to Home Depot tonight and try and build the Ark, and I wouldn't do it. There's no way I could build Noah's Ark. With all the power tools and all the wood, I mean, think about it. I'm just not doing it. And then I and then I turn my eyes to the pyramids and go, oh, not a shot in the world. Even with modern equipment, am I getting there? Just help me understand what was going through their minds when they were doing this. That certainly is the question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> the, the pyramids of, of Egypt. And I visited pyramids in Central America as well. Uh, the Mayan pyramids uh, are just, I mean, you look at these things as like, and the Mayans did not have metal tools. But, you know, the thing is, I know that um, in the paranormal world, everyone assumes aliens came and, and built these things, and that is certainly a possibility. But human beings were no less clever 5,000 years ago. It's just that they had a different level of technology. And also, they didn't sit there going, you know, we don't have power tools, so we can't do this. That wasn't how they thought. They thought, we're going to do this. Now, there's people who feel that the pyramids had nothing to do with burial chambers and that there was some type of power production facility. Some feel that they were built by aliens. Others feel that there's some type of vortex between this side and the other side. And that's what's so wonderful about the pyramids of the Giza Plateau. The mysteries continue on and on and on. And the parts of the, especially the Great Pyramid, which is accessible, uh, is such a small fraction of the pyramid. And recent sonic and ultrasound tests have indicated that there are at least two pretty large chambers in the upper section of the pyramid that, I mean, there there's hollow hollow sounds, something like 30 to 40 feet long in, in this one area. So that certainly indicates that there are undiscovered or, or still hidden passages and chambers within the, the Great Pyramid of the Giza Plateau. From what we can tell, they are roughly 4,500 years old. Egypt has a very long history. And, you know, most Americans, and, you know, I don't mean this in, a, in an insulting way, but most Americans are, are fairly uninformed about Egyptian history. I mean, a lot of people think that King Tut was found in a pyramid. The pyramids were built during the fourth dynasty. A dynasty is a family which rules a kingdom. And so the pyramids were built during the fourth dynasty, which was roughly 5,000 to 4,500 years ago. King Tut 
was a the last king of the 18th dynasty. And so let's look at it like this, Jim. Almost as much time passed between the construction of the Great Pyramid and the burial of Tutankhamun than has passed between the birth of Jesus and the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus. <laughs> That's a long time. So the Great Pyramid is 45 centuries ago. King Tut was 33 centuries ago. Cleopatra was 20 centuries ago. So think about between King Tut and Cleopatra, there was a good 1,300 years. Which is uh, phenomenal to think about. So the other fascinating thing I, I find, and I've uh, been watching some, some videos about these, the Roman roads. I, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sure you've driven in Pennsylvania before or the Northeast or most of the country for that matter. And these Roman roads, they built out of stone and by hand back in the day, are holding up better than today's roads by... <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, you know, what's funny is um, there are, are places in Europe where Roman drainage systems are still functioning. You know, during the Victorian era in, in London in the 1850s, uh, Prince Albert, uh, before he died, but he was Queen Victoria's husband, he wanted to, he headed up a project to update London's sewage system and he discovered that the sewage system and the drainage system was the same one that the Romans had built practically 2000 years before and we're still working and but but you know the Romans they weren't working with temporary materials they were working with stone. They were working with copper. Unfortunately, they were also working with lead. So when they would build these aqueducts, the aqueducts are, you know, you see those beautiful arched um, structures, and they would transport the water. And Roman engineering was just amazing. I mean, they had it down to a science to where these aqueducts would basically go up to a mountain where there'd be a, a mountain stream melting uh, uh, snows, uh, melting, uh, you know, ice from glaciers, and they would collect the water, and then they'd build these series of arches, and there would be a channel on the top of that, and they would have it, um, the, the, the grade of the incline, like, you know, a half inch every so many feet, you know, so they understood that water flows downhill. They may not have understood the laws of gravity, um, but they understood essentially how that worked. But the problem is they used to line these uh, water delivery systems with lead because lead's a soft metal and it was easy to work with. Unfortunately, what happens when you drink water that comes through lead pipes? You get lead poisoning. And there have been a lot of skeletons uh, from the Roman era unearthed and examined which show the effects of lead poisoning so you know the romans were very clever but certainly they didn't understand that and they also used copper but copper would have been much more expensive to use but but be that as it may here's an interesting statistic rome the the city of ancient rome when rome was you know flourishing at its at the height uh, at its height which would have been roughly two thousand years ago um, more water flowed into ancient Rome 
by Roman aqueducts, then water flows into Manhattan today. That's pretty impressive because, I mean... Yeah. (laughs) The name of that river escapes me, but I'm seeing it on the map coming right down through. The Tiber. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, can you imagine that? The Roman irrigation system handled more water... And ancient Rome was roughly a city of about a million, maybe a million, million and a half people. I mean, how many people live in, in New York City? About eight million. Uh, say, so they, many, yeah, many, they many had more times. <laughs> yeah, they had more water flowing flowing into that. But you know, once again, people back then they didn't say, "Oh, we we can't do this because we don't have the technology." They figured it out. But you know that 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 mentality still exists. I mean, think about it when when John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy, said, within 10 years, we're going to go to the moon. You know, right? So he made this speech about, in 10 years, we're going to go to the moon. Now, here's what's cool about this. My dad was a young engineer, and he was working at this company called Reaction Motor. And they built, you know, huge engines. And the vice president said, uh, of the company came in and, and he told all these engineers next week the president is going to be making a speech about how we're going to be uh, taking a man to the moon and back and you guys have to figure out how we're doing this and my dad's looking at everybody else and they're like what <laughs> and, and you know because to them space travel was you know, of course you know the russians had done sputnik and and we'd had a little you know a, a few a few things uh launched but for them going to the moon, that was, dad said that was like Flash Gordon. You know, that was a science fiction of, of his day. And he started working with these other engineers. And what he said was, he said, the main boosters are going to have too much power. And we need a secondary system of retro rockets to cushion the landing of the lunar module when it lands on the moon. And all the engineers started laughing at him, and they, his nickname was Rocket Man. You know, this is way before, you know, Kim Jong-un got <laughs> nicknamed uh, Little Rocket Man. But uh, the engineers were making fun of my dad. But the lead engineer said to my dad, he goes, and my dad's name was Earl, he says, Earl, what, what, what's your plan? He said, we need these retro rockets and a special fuel supply so that when they cut the main boosters, then they can kick in these smaller rockets to have less thrust and then a softer landing. All right, so let's fast forward to 1969. The Eagle has landed. All right, Apollo 11. It lands Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon. And what's interesting, um, uh, Jim, throughout the course of my life, I was honored to have met both Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Um I, I, you know, just when I think about that, I met John Glenn and I met uh, Mike Foreman, who was a shuttle pilot. But, but uh, there was the landing on the moon, and of course, we all know how Neil Armstrong said, "One small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind." And well, unbeknownst to everybody but the White House and NASA, the ignition switch on the lunar module broke, and there was other complications when the lunar module came in for a landing. They overshot their site by 20 miles, 
and in so doing burned up all the reserve fuel. So now the ignition switch is broken and President Nixon was informed and they prepared a speech for him where he was going to go on world television and say these heroes are going to die in the, on the moon. Their oxygen will run out specifically at this time. Meanwhile, back on the lunar module, um, Neil, Neil Armstrong, the pilot, says to Buzz Aldrin, the engineer, can you fix this? And Buzz said, Neil, we got one chance. So he took a big pen. Those old style, remember those old style big pens? Uh, it, you know, and, and he unscrewed the, uh, the, the, the tube with the ink in it. Do you remember those, Jim? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he said, Neil, this is our one chance. And he jammed, <laughs> he jammed the, the plastic tube into the switch, pulled it up. They heard a click and it was lift off. It worked. But then, NASA had to recalculate the orbit of the command module because they had landed 20 miles off course. They had less fuel, but they did it. They were able to rendezvous and dock with the command module. Well, I saw Neil, um, not, uh, I met Neil Armstrong, but I saw Buzz Aldrin, um, speak about, about 15 years ago. And he was telling that story because, you know, now it's declassified. And he said, if we didn't have retro rockets, we never would have made it off the moon because we, you know, we used up our reserve fuel on the main thrusters. But because we had retro rockets, we were able to fire those up and get us into lunar orbit so we could rendezvous with the command module. And who came up? with the idea of retro rockets on the lunar module, but my dad. And I remember hearing that and I realized, oh my God, if it weren't for my dad and his idea, those guys may have died, probably would have died on the moon. And my dad's not in any any science books. He's not even in a footnote somewhere about that. But I know that this happened because I remember him talking about it through my whole life. And, and I didn't realize uh, the importance of retro rockets until it was confirmed by Buzz Aldrin, uh, the astronaut who was there on the moon. And, you know, Jim, this underscores the importance of every life. Every person matters. Every one counts. And it doesn't matter whether or not my dad is in a history book. He did it because his life mattered. His life counts. And maybe, you know, we're, we're not all NASA engineers or Navy SEALs or whatever, but you can perform a kindness for somebody. You can acknowledge somebody. You can give someone the time of day and you have no idea what a difference that may be making in someone's life. So that, for me, underscored how important it is to realize that every person matters and everybody has their part to play. So, Mark, I want to fast forward a little bit your dad's life, and I forget the name of the group, but he uh, right before he passed there at the end, he went with a group of military vets to D.C., that was the honor flight. Yes. And that was one of the greatest honors of my life. The honor flight is a fascinating and, and incredible organization. It was created about 20 years ago or so. There, there was these four pilots 
And they saw that all these World War II and Korean War veterans never got to go to Washington, D.C. to see the monuments that were erected to them. So they started this volunteer thing where they'd start flying guys in there, and it became more and more popular, and then it became an organization. Then Southwest Airlines got involved, and Southwest donates a plane every Saturday, and they will fly veterans up. And you have to have, um, the veteran has to be accompanied by a guardian. And I, I volunteered to be my dad's guardian. Uh, you know, my brother, sister, and I talked about it. And uh, I said, let me do this. And it was the most amazing experience. There's all these guys in their uh, late 70s through their early 90s who, um, and, and, you know, the veteran has to have a wheelchair. A lot of them are like, I don't want that wheelchair, you know, but we try to make it as easy as possible. But, you know, we meet at three in the morning, uh, and then they're, they're taken to the airport and everywhere we go, when we landed in DC, there's a huge group of military there and, and people cheering them. And, uh, then, they are taken to the World War II monument, the Korean War monument, the 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 uh, Vietnam uh, Wall, the the um, the Center for the Air Force for Women's Veterans. I mean, it's all over D.C. All this happens within a 24-hour period, and it's amazing how you see all these old uh, old guys and a couple. Um, there we had a couple a couple like Navy nurses and a and a whack and and all that. And, you know, you think that they're all old and sick and all that. They were, but all of a sudden the surge of energy comes through them. And I saw my dad talking to these guys, and and I didn't realize that my dad was involved in all these covert operations. And I'm listening to him talking to these other guys. I'm like, good Lord, my father was Rambo. <laughs> I mean, it was it was incredible. And, and um, Bob Dole used to go every Saturday. He was at the World War II Memorial, and I remember wheeling my dad up, and my dad and he clasped hands. And Bob Dole was just so kind and so gracious. And and just thinking about it makes me, I, I'm getting like tears in my eyes. It is just such an, such an amazing thing to do. And for any listener out there, if you have uh, a father or an uncle or a grandfather that was a veteran, and uh, and now, you know, because the World War II and the Korean guys are pretty much dying out, and now it's the Vietnam veterans, if you have an opportunity to be a guardian for the honor flight, I guarantee you that will be one of the most rewarding and incredible experiences of your life and something you will never regret. I want to thank you for sharing that again, Mark, and that is just a, I'm glad I'm glad you had the opportunity to do that because... Uh... Yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's something you'll never forget, I'm sure. You know, and, and you know, when my dad passed, um, I can't believe it's been five years now. It's just, you know, the, for everyone who's lost a loved one, it doesn't matter if it's five years or 50 years. I mean, the pain comes right back. But um, I've got one of his uh, T-shirts that I wear fairly often. It was his Navy SEAL shirt. And it's it's amazing, like, where I go places and the way people react to me. And they say, oh, a Navy SEAL. I said, no, my dad was. And then they realize, oh, you know. And um, it's it's important that we take care of our veterans. I mean, I'm glad that, uh, you know, Congress just passed some some laws to do more things for them because I really get sick of 
of hearing the government go, oh, we're going to take care of the veterans, and they don't do anything. And, and for anyone that's had to deal with the VA, it is not an easy organization to deal with. And there is absolutely, now I'm going to get political, there is absolutely zero reason in the United States of America, the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world, that any of our veterans should be homeless, that any of our veterans should not be receiving first-class medical attention. Because anyone that puts on the uniform, male or female, and serves this country deserves that. They have earned that right. And, and for all these spineless politicians that won't do this, all I can say is shame on you. Well, there's a lot more I can say than that, but, you know, we are on, on the radio. Uh, um, John Stewart, uh, the former host of uh, The Daily Show, was yes. out, was outside and, and uh, well, he said it more strongly than you just did, but I totally agree with all that. I mean, if we're going to spend all this on defense spending, we should take care of those who are part of that. So let's shift gears slightly. Uh, you, you mentioned going to the moon and all that fun stuff, and we're, you've got Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk and uh, William Richard, Shatner, <laughs> William Shatner and Richard Branson, and like there's just a, a new a newfangled space race, I guess. How far? How, great. how far does it go, though? Apparently, the sky, pun intended, <laughs> is the limit. Um, you know, I remember being, you know, we were joking around one time talking about, you know, what's it going to be like for our grandkids, you know, but mom, I want to go to the moon. It's just for the summer. <laughs> you know, I mean, is it going to get like that? And it, it might. And why not? Uh, it should. You know, one of the things that, that COVID and I really, look, I am not a uh, pandemic and conspiracy person because I'm a student of history. And if you study history, uh, pandemics are part of them. Bubonic plague, plague of 1665, the Spanish flu. I mean, you could go on. I mean, uh, there, there have been plagues throughout, throughout, uh, history since the dawn of time. And the pandemic, though, when the whole world went into lockdown, it was roughly a six week period. There was peace for the most part. And all of the world's scientists were working and sharing information about coming up with a cure. And I remember doing some readings for people and messages were coming through from the collective consciousness. The collective consciousness is, is uh, spirits because spirits are not just, you know, individual uh, entities. They're energetically linked to other spirits, linked to other spirits, and they're part of this vast intelligence network. And the message was that humanity was given a glimpse of what we can achieve, that this plague showed us that we can cooperate and that we can put our intellectuals and our scientists working together to solve this world's problems. And for a moment, as horrible as COVID is, and it is horrible, there was a glimmer that, wow, we really can work together. Think about if if all of our scientists, all of our doctors were all of our engineers were put were sharing information on how to cure disease, how to increase food production, how to reduce greenhouse gases, how to um, protect the oceans. We can do it. 
But then the lockdown ended and we slid right back into, well, I don't trust you. We have to have the biggest comment. We have to be this military. We have to do this. We have to. And the us versus them syndrome came back. And that's why I think that there is a positive side to every, in gain there is losses and loss there is gain. We were actually, we meaning humanity, was given the opportunity to change our direction. And for a heartbeat in time, we did. But unfortunately, now we're right back to to where we started. I mean, Putin had to go and invade the Ukraine. Yeah, there's the war in Somalia. Al-Qaeda is back in Afghanistan. Uh, Myanmar, there's genocide. China wants to, con- you know, it's like, na 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 it's, it's the same old story. The only thing that has changed is our technological capability to destroy this planet. And humanity, I think people, I think John and Jane Q. Public get it. Wherever you go in the world, most people want the same things. They want a safe neighborhood. They want their children to be well-fed, loved, educated. They want someone to come home to that cares about them at night. They want peace. Unfortunately, the people in power are so obsessed with power that it becomes a reason for them to divert resources into competition and and war. And, you know, I'm not some, you know, flag, you know, granola snorting, you know, hippie. Uh, I'm a student of history. And all you have to do is look at history, and it's the same thing over and over and over. And the leaders of all these countries are so... Uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, the, the rock and roll musician, said it best. When the power of love overcomes the love of power, then there will be peace in the world. Those musicians back in the day. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this earlier when you were talking about um, whole Huey, Huey Lewis, um, how song lyrics, they stick with me, or they'll come to me at random times, and... You'll have to figure out, is it the song, is it the artist, is it the actual words that I'm hearing? Because sometimes that happens too. And I, I think, I mean, I know that's some sort of afterlife communication that works through my brain. I'm sure it works through other people's brains because there's so many different songs that kind of makes it easier method to transmit those messages. Maybe. I don't know. Sometimes I wish they'd just slap me upside the head and just tell me, but what do I know? <laughs> Some days, some days are like that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny because I saw on the news today, I think it was like, uh, it was 1969 was Woodstock. I think it started, uh, today. Uh, today's the, what, 53rd anniversary yeah. of, of Woodstock. And they said that, uh, there were no fights. There was like one or two babies born. It was this peaceful thing. It was the love generation. All right. What do you think would happen now if you got a quarter of a million young people together listening to today's music? Well, they do you try- think it would be Love Fest? It's funny you mentioned that because they tried that. I watched the documentary on um, Netflix about the uh, the 1999 version of Woodstock they tried to do, and by Sunday night they burnt the place to the ground. Yeah, <laughs> you know because uh, the peace and love and groovy thing. It just didn't last very long, um, you know. And and 
I, you know, I love music and I listen to a lot of the music. There's a lot of great music out today, but there's also a lot of anger, anger, anger. And, and the people who write those, those songs have reasons for being angry, but it incites music incites people. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm just, it's just an observation. I don't think a phenomenon like Woodstock could happen again. And I was way too young for that. That, that was before my time. But, you know, I, I was aware. I saw the movie Woodstock, and then I was looking at it. And it's like, ooh, I wouldn't want to have done that. <laughs> I mean, it looked like it was like there was no food. It was raining a lot. All these people were in the mud. And I've talked to people that were there. And I said, what was it like? And they go, it was horrible. <laughs> I mean, they said, yeah, the music was great and all this. But but the, the there were no accommodations. You slept on the ground. It was mud. There was no bathrooms. It was just awful. Wait, um, wait, wait. There was no bathrooms. You slept on the ground, and there was mud. I'm not good at math, but oh boy. Anyways, go ahead. Yeah. Mark, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm listening to that going. It's like people saying, "Oh, I want to be at Times Square on New Year's Eve," and it's like, "Yeah, but what happens if you got a tinkle?" <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like you got to think of these things. People are like, "Oh, I'm gonna party." Or really, you want to drink beer, and there's no nowhere to go to the bathroom anywhere. So, uh, so between our options of Romans drinking lead or being in the mud in the in Woodstock, New York, I'm going to drink some lead. <laughs> and you know, the average lifespan during the Roman Empire, twenty eight. Man, think about that for a minute. Well, think about this: the average lifespan in the United States in the year nineteen hundred forty five. So. Within a century and a quarter, that has now roughly doubled. And isn't that amazing? Benefits of modern medicine. That's incredible. Yeah. And lawyers. No, wait. Well, yes. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> Everything in our life has some form of regulation attached to it. And it can be a real nuisance and it can be annoying. But if you drink water that doesn't have lead in it, if you eat food that isn't poisonous, um, thank a lawyer for that. Because it's those rules and regulations. And it was President Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, started the Food and Drug Administration. And, and uh, there was a book, what was it? Uh, I think it was called The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. And it exposed uh, what was going on in meatpacking industry, like, you know, the rat meat and all that that was in sausage and everything. And that came out and people were horrified. And Teddy Roosevelt got hold of that. It was like, you know, he was a bully. He was like a real aggressive. Um, he was the, the type of president that we really do need. Um, and he grabbed the, the bull by the horns and created the Food and Drug Administration and started improving the quality of life for people. Uh, and he did it a lot, not just through legislative acts, but also filing suit. So lawyers have had a lot to do with making something safer for people. But of course, lawyers also you know, create a lot of aggravation for, for people as well. So yeah, we got to look at both sides of the story here. Well, we'll take both sides, right? That's that's the uh, the good position. I'll be the judge, and we'll take both sides. <laughs> Mark, man, I appreciate you deal, dealing with my technicalities tonight and switching operating programs. I don't know. It's been a it's been a night. 
Yeah, well, sometimes technology is our friend and other times it isn't. Do you watch the Orville? Have you seen the Orville? Not yet. It's on the list of things to watch. Uh, Orville is great. Um, technological issues and technology that becomes hostile. I'm just going to leave that thought with you when it comes to the Orville. Okay, so technology that becomes hostile. Mark, I thank you again, and have a good night, and uh, stay safe as you travel around, and I'll catch up with you in... Uh, November, we're doing the Curse of King Tut here on the Mallard Report. Woohoo! Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks, Jim. Okay, guys. So, we've got about two minutes left, and I, I just want to clear up some things. I know some of you are a little disappointed with Mark. Uh, Mark and me have went back and forth for a long time, and uh, he just wants what's best for the show, and I get it. And, uh, yeah, reading stuff on air is not my strong suit, and that's why I tend to avoid it. Um, Germantown Runner knows there are some situations going on today that, well, I wasn't necessarily prepared to come in the studio, but I figured I had Mark coming on so I could kind of fake it until I made it tonight, and it didn't necessarily work. So, lessons learned the hard way. I should have been a little bit more prepared, but nevertheless, uh, I think tonight kind of came out as well as we could hope. Um, yeah, so, it's Okay. We will, we will soldier forward with some more good stuff I've got coming up. Uh, we've got some really good guests I'm excited about. Some different topics too. A little off kilter, but we're going to make a mark around here. Uh, we'll be back into the paranormal come October though, of course, I think. Just because. But I, I gotta get a little wild here in the next few weeks. It's okay. We'll get there. I just want to thank everybody who's been listening for all these years and just take a moment here and, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll let you know, but uh, and I'll let you know some of the other stuff too, but not right now. It's just kind of a moment. We're just going to take a few minutes here and breathe and uh, thank everybody and yeah, hey, it's all good. And Malcolm Malcolm Lagrange Lagrange. Oh man, I think I butchered his last name. I'll look it up and send it to you, Gio. You'll love that one. You think tonight was bad? Well, that one takes the cake. I promise you. Talk to you soon. It's the Mallard Report. Yeah, the Mallard Report. Hey, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a good show tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Take a few moments, subscribe, share, all the fun stuff. You know how to do it. I don't have to tell you. Just uh, be ready for next week. It'll be sooner than you think. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotus, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah, right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chapotis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. 
You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.